here in person. I'm grateful for all of you who are here. Grateful for all of you online who are joining us. I'm, I'm aware today we have people who are with us in places throughout the world, in Europe, I know right now in Germany, in Greece. Uh, I know there are people in Ukraine who are uh, participating in this worship service with us. I know there are people in other states, Florida and Kentucky and other foreign places throughout the world like Texas and California. We're grateful that you are uh, hanging out with us this morning and participating in this worship service. There were four climbers. This was late May, just a few years ago. They had summited Mount Hood. So he spent five hours reaching all the way to the summit. And like any of you who have ever climbed to a summit, more than those of you who have driven to a summit, when you climb to a summit, there are high fives and hugs and handshakes. And you're there for a few moments. And you take a moment to pause and to gaze and to see all the beauty of God's creation. So they had done that. But, but if you've summited, if you climb for five hours to reach a summit, you know that there's also a way down, right? So they knew that they could only be there for so long enjoying the summit. They had to make their way down. And on the way down, they were roped together with rope about 35 feet in between each of them, so a little over 10 yards. And for some reason, they chose not to hook themselves, to use the safety protection that kept them connected to the mountain. So they're walking down, connected to each other, but not using the tools that they had to keep them connected to, to the mountain. And the one who was leading the way slipped and he fell. So 35 feet between him and the next climber, he fell around 35 feet before the rope went taut. And, and at that moment, he's already at about 30, 35 miles per hour. So guy number two didn't have a chance. He fell too, as well as guy number three and guy number four. On the way down, their rope clotheslined two other teams of climbers. So you have three teams of climbers now who all fell to the ground. Everybody who fell was injured, three died. Two of the men who fell was Chris and Harry. They were longtime friends. They ran together. They trained together in their running and doing marathons and thing like, things like that. And, and one phrase they would always whisper to each other or when they were running, if one of them had a moment of pain and they needed help pressing through, what they would say to each other is, put away the pain and hold on. There's a life to live. So they would quote this to each other. So down on the ground, one of them had broken a number of bones in his body and he was hysterical in the moment and his hysteria was causing everyone else who was injured to freak out as well. So the other one leaned over to him and began whispering that phrase. They had whispered to each other or said to each other numerous times, put away the pain and hold on. There's a life to live. Now, some people who know anything about summits, you know when you get there, a lot of times you're tired, dehydrated, you're uh, hypothermic. There are a number of things wrong with you that in that moment, and sometimes these factors can be enough to erode both mental and physical awareness and abilities. And you put all that together, it can make you clumsy and inattentive, accident prone, and it can impair judgment. So there may be a guest with us today and you're like, man, does your preacher always begin his sermons talking about how people fall to their death? And what your response is, our preacher is definitely unpredictable, but he doesn't always start his sermons this way. So I tell the story maybe for two different reasons. One, I just wanna encourage you that as you think about how you're going through life, that the people you choose to connect yourself to in life are people who aren't afraid to take risks, but they're also wise and they're grounded and they are rooted. It's important, especially when it comes to what it means to be the church. 
And as we go through life, especially as we go through times of pain or heartache or brokenness, even though we may be doing just fine, there are those times we need to remind each other, not just, it's not forget the pain, but it's through the pain. We're not gonna let the pain define us. Keep holding on to what is eternal because even right now for you, there's a life to live. So open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter five. Because the way the Corinthians were going about life, it was like they were pulling each other down off the mountain. It's like they were so divided, they had kind of lost their roots and what they were supposed to be grounded in. So as you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter five, let me just walk you through real quick, Paul's relationship with the churches in Corinth. To the best of my ability, here's how it goes. Paul went to Corinth and he planted the churches there, launched them, and you can read this in Acts chapter 18. You can read about Paul's relationship with the people of Corinth. He had a job there, he was a tent maker. Now when you think about Paul being a tent maker, I don't want you to think about like wilderness trek and and climbing on mountains and then setting up a tent where you sleep in it. I don't want you to think tents that way. I want you to think about tents as Paul would help form canopies for marketplaces where people would sell all their stuff. So it's keeping them uh, in the shade and keeping rain from falling on all their stuff they're trying to sell. But he had a job there. And you can read in Acts chapter 18 where Paul is ministering to Jews and he's ministering to Gentiles and a church is planted and the church is growing and there's also persecution. And then Paul left Corinth. And then Paul caught wind that back in Corinth, there were all kind of divisions that were happening and there were, uh, they had sexual problems, social problems, spiritual problems, all kind of heartache in the church. So Paul wrote what we now have as 1 Corinthians. And then we believe that Paul took a second trip there and that second trip did not go well. It's like when you show up at Thanksgiving and from the moment you arrive to the moment you leave, there is just tension and you don't know really what to do about it. That's what Paul's second visit was like to the churches of Corinth. It just didn't go well. So then Paul wrote what we don't have. We don't have the next letter he wrote to Corinth. We don't have it. Maybe he saved it on one of those floppy disks. How many of you remember the floppy disks? that your computers used to eat every few weeks, right? He didn't save it to his iCloud, so we don't know what it is. And then we know that Paul is going to make a third trip to Corinth. So he's on his way to go back to this church where he knows there's tension. So he's heading south. He's going through Thessalonica. He's going through Philippi. He's heading south. And Titus, who is down in Corinth, who maybe you would call him like the minister of some of the churches in Corinth, Titus knows that things aren't going well in the churches of Corinth. And he knows Paul is coming to visit for the third time. So he decides to go meet Paul to kind of give him a heads up on, hey man, when you get down here, I just want you to know what to prepare for. So Titus starts heading south. So Titus is searching for Paul. He's probably going to every Starbucks, every Chick-fil-A, like surely Paul would be in one of these places. As he's traveling, he finds Paul and Titus basically says, okay, Paul, there's some good things that are happening. People have been baptized, the church is growing. You know, there's some good things happening, but Paul, there's some bad things happening too. Some of those same problems that have existed for years have existed, but even worse than that, Paul, I just need you to know that down in Corinth, there are some other leaders of the churches who have come in and they're minimizing your leadership and they're challenging your ministry and they're teaching that you're really not good about what you, in, in what you do. They're challenging your authority. They're challenging whether you have a gift of leadership or not. Like they're, they're challenging everything about you. And that is where Paul decides to call a timeout. And instead of going down to Corinth to visit them, he goes and he sits down and he writes what we now have as 2 Corinthians. 
where now Paul writes to these people. And I don't think Paul is writing so much out of anger when he writes 2 Corinthians. He's writing with a broken heart. He's writing to somebody who's just really sad about this church and churches he's invested in for a number of years. And now these people have started to believe that his ministry doesn't matter. And they're calling in the question of, they're, they're throwing all these accusations at him and calling in the question like whether he really is being led by God or not. So he writes 2 Corinthians, and in 2 Corinthians, we get some of what have become some of our favorite verses in all of the Bible. Verses like these in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he, will and he will deliver us again. And on him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver and rescue us. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 22. Now it is God who makes both of us and you stand firm in Christ, that he anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. It's where we get verses like 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. It's where we get places like 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. And it's where we get places like 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Now, <clears throat> here is why 2 Corinthians, for us who are preachers, here is why 2 Corinthians is one of the hardest books in the New Testament for us to preach. Like if we really want to honor the integrity of the text. It's because almost all of 2 Corinthians, almost all 13 chapters, is a defense of Paul's ministry. He's defending his own ministry. And I don't feel like my ministry is something that needs to be defended in front of you as if I'm being attacked or accused of all kinds of stuff. I don't feel that way. I, I'm with our elders here at the church quite a bit. I don't feel like our elders feel the need to stand up in front of the church to defend their ministry. I, I'm with our staff a lot all week. I don't feel like our staff feels like there's a need for them to stand up in, the, in front of the church and to defend their ministry. Now, there have been some hard moments I mean, I've been in this for over 20 years now. I've been cursed out by people before. They said it was done in the name of Jesus for my good. I mean, it's happened. I've been called names. I've had people want to talk to me about hell, not because they wanted a conversation about heaven or hell. It's where they believed that I was going, all right? So I, I mean, I've received anonymous letters which go straight in the trash can. Like, I mean, there are things that, I've, that have happened to me over the years, but nothing like what happened to Paul. Check this out. And he tells, he writes this in 2 Corinthians. He says this. Five times I received from the Jews, the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the sea, in danger in the country, in danger uh, at, at, in the city, in the sea, in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked besides everything else. I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. So in no way I'm ever gonna sit down next to Paul and be like, I feel exactly what you felt in your ministry. Like I've had it pretty good. So in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes to defend his ministry. 
Because he's writing to people who in a way have been like pulling themselves off a mountain. And he's writing. And when he writes, he doesn't so much use a bunch of language about I and me and my. He writes about we and us. It's a beautiful it's a beautiful move by a leader who surrendered their life to Jesus. That I need to let these people know that my ministry really is from God. But what I also want to remind these churches is what it means to be the church. So though he writes in a way to defend his own ministry, he writes to remind them of who the church is. So he uses image after image and metaphor after metaphor and illustration after illustration to remind people of who they are in God. So he writes these 13 chapters that we have now called 2 Corinthians. And in it, he places in front of them the heart of the gospel that expresses itself something like this, that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, it gives everything and it also requires everything. That Jesus gave everything. And for us, it requires everything. That it radically changes everything about our lives, money, priorities, hobbies, friendship, purity, character, marriage, everything. And I've heard people say, some of the, you know, John Maxwell, some people who write a lot on leadership, they're like, you know, the, the primary leader in churches or organizations or businesses, in some ways, like you have CEOs, COOs, CFOs, but every leader, every day you are a CRO. You are a chief reminding officer. It's not just up to you to bring all kind of new ideas to people, but you remind them every day of who they are. And for the church, it's reminders of who we are in God and what it means to be God's people in the world. So here's what I'm going to do, and I'm going to go through these fairly quickly. I'm going to take the, the passage Courtney read to us just for a few moments ago in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21, and I want to point out seven words or phrases that I want to invite you to reflect upon and to respond to in your life. Got it? A few moments, I'm going to repeat to you or give you seven words or phrases. And the first one is in verse 11. And in verse 11, it goes like this. It's what Paul writes. He's like, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. I want you to think about that phrase, fear the Lord, because he makes it sound like, like we just do this. Like we fear the Lord, but do we fear the Lord? And here's the only quote outside of scripture I'm gonna give you today. And here's, here's the quote about the fear of God. We fear God so little that we seldom sense the seriousness of our sin. And we sense the seriousness of our sin so little that we seldom fear God. And the way the fear of God works throughout Scripture is the fear of God isn't meant to make you afraid of God, where you don't want to talk to God, or you want to hide from God, or you want to run from God. The fear of God is meant to invite people into the heart of God. The fear of God is knowing who God is and what God has done. And the fear of God is meant to grow in you this deep reverence and respect for the creator of the world who knows you intimately and is inviting you into deeper places. The second word or phrase is this in the same verse, and it's the word persuade. And here's what's so interesting about persuade or persuasion. Is that in Greek culture, like rhetoric was everything. Bluetooth disconnected. Bluetooth, pairing. <clears throat> I don't even know what to say right now. I don't know if you online heard that or not. In the Greek culture, persuasion was so loved by people, they deified it. 
they made persuasion into a goddess and they worshiped it. And some of you are like, in my family, we do the same thing. Like we, we have deified persuasion and we worship it. Like it's everything. For them, they deified it. Like it was so important to their culture and to who they are. Now here's the thing. In Greek culture, persuasion was so important because you were using human intelligence to try to persuade people into whatever argument you were placing in front of them. And what Paul wants people to know is the persuasion that comes in the gospel of Jesus, it's not just based on human intelligence, it is based on the power of the Spirit of God. And it's through the power of the Spirit of God which uses human intelligence that persuasion happens. Now what was true then is also true for us now. That if you want to try, if we want to try to persuade people about what we want to say to them about Christ, they have to first be persuaded by the way we live our lives. Because if they're not persuaded that our lives line up with our words, they may never listen to our words. So if we want to persuade people to live lives devoted to Christ, what we first have to do is live lives devoted to Christ. So that our lives become persuasion so the people will listen to what we have to say. So have you been persuaded about the goodness and greatness of Jesus? And do you see your life as something God is using to persuade other people about Christ? The word and phrase for number three is found in verse 14 through 15. Let me read these two verses and then we'll talk about them. And what Paul, 14 and 15 is for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So the third word or phrase is compel. And some of your versions, it may be urge. Literally in the Greek, and James Thompson points this out in his book on 2 Corinthians, it's this word seneke, which is taken into custody. It's how you think about this word. So for Paul, what he's placing in front of them is that his heart has been captured and held in custody by the love of Christ, like held hostage by the love of Christ. This is a leader worth following in your life. Like you want a leader or a mentor or someone to model your life after, find somebody who is living a life compelled and urged and held hostage by the love of Christ. And because of that, what Paul also points out in those two verses is this phrase, and I want you to highlight this phrase in your Bible if you make notes, is one died for all. There are those who point out that this is the most important phrase Maybe not just in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This may be the most important phrase in all of Paul's ministry. That when he's trying to prove a point, he will often go back to a phrase like, one died for all to remind people of the cross of Christ. If there's one regret I have in my 15 years or so of preaching here, I don't think in the first few years of my ministry I preached enough cross. And... Um, I can't remember if I've told you on a Sunday morning this or was it, if it was with a youth group at church camp or uh, some other settings I'm in, but, but every day a discipline of mine is I, I take a pen and I write a cross right here on my hand. It's a practice I got from a friend a few years ago. When he was 18 or 19, he had somebody who encouraged him to do it because I'm right-handed, so almost everything I do, with, uh, I talk with my hands, I write with my right hand, if I'm going to wipe the sweat off my forehead, it's with my right hand. I drive my right hand's usually on the wheel when 
people are driving, they get mad at me and they flip me off. I'm usually giving them a thumbs up or prayer hands, you know, while, I, while I'm driving and I, I'm, I'm looking at that cross. And there are times throughout the day that hopefully I'm washing my hands throughout the day that it will fade and I put it back on. But it's a constant reminder of the cross that is the center of my life. And Paul's placing in front of people, like, you may be coming after me, accusing me of all these things going on in my ministry, but I, what I want to place back in front of you, it's not just trying to get my name right back in the churches, like for you to respect me the way you used to. What I want you to live, how I want you to live, is responding daily in your life that one died for all, which changes everything, both for you and for whoever the person is in front of you. The word or phrase number five is in verse 17. And in verse 17, we read, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. James Thompson points out that what he thinks is happening in this verse is it's like this. If anyone is in Christ, there is a new world for you. Like anyone who is in Christ, the way God sees the world is how God wants to lead you to see the world. Now, when you look at that verse 17, I love the whole part about new creation. Like I want so much of my ministry to be about helping to convince people, whether it's in a setting like this or one-on-one, -on -one, that there is new creation for you in your life. But then there's that one part about like the old is gone. And what does it mean that the old is gone? Is it that the old is gone and you don't remember it anymore? I mean, what, what is the old is gone? What does that even mean? When I first did prison ministry, I was 21 years old. I'd just been hired on by Mike Cope, who was a preacher out in West Texas, and I was hired on as associate preacher. And Mike told me one day, we're going to do prison ministry, you're coming with me. And we showed up and there were 200 inmates who came into this like warehouse setting inside of this prison. There, it, this was the month of August in West Texas, there's no air conditioning, the windows were open, and we were in there for a couple of hours. And these men who were there were just pouring their hearts out to God in worship. And then Mike came over to me and he said, hey, uh, you're up to preach here in just a few minutes. You have 10 minutes. I was 21 years old. Like I feel a lot more confident now that in those moments I have something to say. Like there's some sermons in my back pocket that I could pull out. I mean, I could preach almost on the spot about Luke chapter five or Luke six or Luke 14 or Matthew 14 or the book of Ephesians. But when I was 21 years old, I had nothing. And I stood up and something came out of me. What I remember is after I spoke, that band in the prison stood back up and they sang a song about the old me is gone. This wasn't the rapper T.I.'s version of the old me is gone, all right? This was a gospel version of it. But every verse they had ended with the old me is gone. And when they would sing that phrase, the whole place, hands were going up, tears were falling off faces. And it's not that the men in that room are gonna forget the things that had happened in their life or the things they had done. It's what the gospel story helps us know is that even though you're not gonna forget all that, what has happened in your past doesn't have to define who you are now, not for those of us who are in Jesus. The new creation moves us forward. And when we are uh, haunted by the things in our past, through the power of God, through what Jesus has done for us, we're able to put it in its proper place. Now, number six and number seven cut straight to the heart. Number six, the phrase is reconcile. And I, want to, I, want, I just want you to see five different times Paul uses either a noun version or a verb version of the word reconcile or reconciliation. In chapter five, verse 18, it's reconciled us to himself through Christ. That same verse, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
In verse 19, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. That same verse, he has committed or he has entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation. And in verse 20, be reconciled to God. Like it's this, it's an imperative, it's a command, be reconciled to God. This derives from a secular use during that period as a diplomatic and political term. Some would argue that the word reconciliation in first century culture, it was this uh, diplomatic political term that it stood for harmony between established, or harmony being established between enemies by peace treaty. So some would argue what Paul is doing here is Paul is saying, look, God is announcing a peace treaty with you. Like God's announcing a peace treaty with humanity. And it's a gift from God. And you'll notice the way Paul talks about reconciliation is at no point is God reconciled to us. We are reconciled to God. So especially for those of us in a setting like this who are believers in Jesus, for reconciliation to happen anywhere in the world today, whether it's between God and a human being or humans and humans or races and races, countries and countries, whatever it may be, it's not that we're stepping toward each other, it's that we're stepping toward God. He's the initiator of reconciliation. He's the subject of it. He's the, he's the purpose of it. And if you notice in what you see up on the screen right now, when Paul talks about reconciliation, the last phrase is like, be reconciled to God. He's writing to people who've already been baptized, and he's telling them, be reconciled to God. Because, uh, I mean, for you right now, like, are there places in your heart or in your mind or in your life that have yet to be given over to the Spirit of God? And if so, what does it mean for us to respond in a way that we're reconciled to God? And the seventh and final word is the word ambassador. In chapter 5, verse 20, Paul says, We're therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. So we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This also is a dignified word, a word that was used in diplomatic and the political world in the first century culture. So Paul uses two words secular words to help the church understand what it means to be the church, being reconciled and being ambassadors. And when you think about an ambassador today, I mean, this is someone who becomes like the voice of a leader as they travel the world to other places. So an ambassador will go to other countries and it's not like they have the president or someone in their ear telling them exactly what to say. They have been entrusted to represent the leader, to represent a country wherever it is they are going. And to think what this is telling us is that God has entrusted the message of reconciliation to us and God has invited the church, has implored the church, like go and be my ambassadors. We are representatives of God. Do you think God really meant it? does God still mean it? So as we go through life as a church, connected to each other, sometimes going up to a summit, sometimes coming from the summit, sometimes moving through the valley, sometimes scaling the mountain in different ways, we're connected to each other as we seek God for wisdom and to help us to be grounded and rooted, to make it through any form of pain that we may experience in life. And for you today, as you go throughout the rest of this day and the rest of your week, will you take seriously what it means to carry the fear of the Lord with you and to know that the fear of the Lord is never meant to drive you away but closer to God? Right? Will you take seriously persuasion of how God wants to persuade you about the goodness of Christ and how God wants to use you to help persuade other people in your life? 
Will you take seriously today and as you live your life this week what it means to be compelled by the love of Christ, taken hostage by it to where other people are able to see it? Take seriously what it means that one died for all in your own life and as you encounter others throughout this week. Know that in and through Jesus, you are a new creation. The old has gone. It has no hold on you anymore because of what Jesus has done for you. And God has reconciled you to himself. And because of that, God believes so much in the church still being reconcilers and agents of reconciliation in this world. And you are ambassadors. And I don't think 2,000 years after Jesus died and rose from the dead that God is in heaven right now desiring an edit button to change places like 2 Corinthians 5.20 because he's given up on humanity but that God is still preparing us to be these representatives of Christ everywhere we go. It's the work of God in you. You have what it takes. So can we stand together this morning? And I just want to place, and we're going to leave verses 14 and 15 on the screen for us this morning as we make our way to the table to be reminded of what Christ has done. And because of what Christ has done, the life it calls us to live. We no longer live for ourselves. We live for Christ. Like this is something to respond to in our lives. Today, Patrick Parson, one of our shepherds, is going to be to my right. I believe Rachel Galbraith and Kim Chapman will be on the, uh, the sides to receive you for prayer. Matt Caskey, one of our shepherds, will be in the back. I'll be over here to the left. If there's any way we can pray any of these truths over you today, we're here for you. And as we move to the table and from the table, and for those of you who may be guests, just follow, follow the flow. Follow the flow. And may the bread and the cup remind us of these truths today. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Will you bow your heads? And if there's anyone here who knew creation is something that maybe you hear about it today for the first time and you desire to know what that means, will you give us a chance to talk with you, pray with you, to help you understand the power of confession and baptism and surrender to Christ? And for those of us who have been there, may God give us a vision. God, give us a vision today of what it means to live for you more than anything. Jesus, you gave everything and you require everything. So we receive you today as a gift and may we respond to the gift so God, I just hold up this church to you today, that Christ will be over them, below them, to the left, to the right, in front and behind and inside. And we pray all this in the power of the name of Jesus and the whole church said, amen. Welcome to